we read from God's word this morning. We're going to be in the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, he came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And he said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said, You go and do likewise. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25, the parable of the Good Samaritan. Parable of the Good Samaritan. We're working our way through some selected parables of Jesus throughout the course of this summer, and this morning is the parable of the Good Samaritan. So find Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. We'll get to the parable in just a minute. A couple of quick questions to kind of get you thinking along the lines of where this parable is going. Here's a question you can think about. Did God save you just so you could go to heaven? And you don't have to answer out loud, uh, not at least yet. Um, did God save you just so you, could, just so you could get to heaven? And if the answer to that is yes, then the question is, why didn't he take you directly to heaven once you got saved? If the answer is no, if he saved me for a little, something more than merely getting to heaven, then the question is, what exactly did he save me for if it's not just simply to go to heaven? What, what is the reason for it? What did God save you for? In Acts chapter 9, uh, uh, a guy named Saul, Paul, the apostle Paul, he gets saved. He had been spending his time persecuting Christians, imprisoning them, having them tortured. Some of them were likely put to death. And this is what he spent his time doing. He encountered a vision of the glory of the risen Christ on his way to Damascus, and this is what it said, what uh, is recorded in Acts chapter 9. A voice, who was Jesus, said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Saul said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. Did you hear that? You will be told what you are to do. Jesus saved Paul, Saul, for a purpose, not merely to get him to heaven. If God just wanted Paul in heaven, he just said, Saul, do you believe? Oh, yeah, I believe. You're dead. But he didn't do that, did he? 
Go to the city and I will show you what you're to do. So he goes to the city. God contacts a guy named Ananias, probably by text, mostly emojis. I'm kidding. I have no idea. He says, Ananias, would you go down to this guy's house? He's on Straight Street. You'll know it because it's got a lot of curves in it. Um, stay with me. Come on. That's, Straight Street wouldn't have curves. Go see a guy named Saul, and I want you to pray over him, and, and then he's going to be able to see again. And Ananias said, God, I'm not going to argue with you, but let me just argue with for, for a minute. He kills Christians? I don't know if I'm down with praying with this guy. And, and God, in his uh, kindness and generosity, said to Ananias, go. He is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. I will show him how much he has to suffer. What was Saul saved for? To go to heaven? Certainly. But what was Saul saved for in the immediacy of the moment? To go to the Gentiles. God saved him with a redemptive purpose to redeem him to glory and to use him to bring others to glory. So the question is, what benefit does your faith in Christ bring to the world around you? The question is, if our salvation is more than just a ticket to heaven, the question we ought to ask ourselves is, what benefit does our faith bring to our world around us, to our homes, to our communities, to our places of work, to our places of recreation? What benefit? God intends for your relationship with him through Christ to bring benefit to the world around you. God intends for your relationship with Christ to not merely be a, a a boarding pass to the train to heaven, it is intended to bring benefit to the people around you. So what is the benefit it brings? Here are some ideas that have been offered in the past. Good people make a good culture, which make a good country. So if we have good moral people, we'll have a good moral country. Harumph usually is how that ends. So we're trying to fill our country with self-righteous, pompous people. Good people bring a good economy. Good people will reduce crime levels. These are all blessings that we want to bring our community. Those are all great things. Good economy, good culture, lower crime level. Those are all good things. None of those things get anybody to heaven, but those are positive things. Let's look at what Jesus says the benefit ought to be to the world around us because of our trust in him by looking at a religious leader who is asking Jesus these same questions. The title of the message today is The Cruelty of Being Good. A lawyer stood up to put Jesus to a test, and this lawyer is not nearly as good as the lawyer you're thinking of that has an ad on the television station. He has, he has the distinct privilege of being a religious lawyer, and you say, well, thank goodness we don't have those any longer. That means you haven't been in church very long. Every church has a religious lawyer whose job has usually self-appointed to tell people how they're supposed to live, and that's what this guy's job was. He was to look at the law and then to tell people how they were supposed to live. And he goes to Jesus and he asks this question, how do I inherit in eternal life? And that's a fair question. That's a good question to be asked. Jesus, how do I get to heaven with God forever? And Jesus tells him, what does the law tell you? How do you read the law? What does it tell you to do? And he answers this way. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, that's a good answer. Do that, you got no problems. See you in heaven. 
This lawyer is, is interrogating Jesus and he's desiring eternal life. And what he wants to do is to be justified so that he may enter glory. But we have to pay attention. He wants to be predetermined how he can justify himself so that he can get to uh, heaven. Look at verse 29 of Luke 10. But he desiring to do what? justify himself and that's the key to understanding his approach to jesus his desire was to justify himself and he wanted to be able able to establish according to his own personal opinion his own personal view of the law and religion and god how to ensure that according to his ways he is justified he wanted to be able to go to bed at night and say i'm a good person what's the minimum thing that is required And his question here is this, who is my neighbor? End of verse 29. Who is my neighbor? And this reveals the cruelty of self-justification. He has asked Jesus this question. How do I get to heaven? Jesus says, perfectly obey the primary tenets of the law. And he says, who do I have to do that towards? Here's another way of asking that. Who is good enough to be the recipient of the glory that is my goodness? Who is my neighbor? Who measures up that they should be so blessed that I might enter a room and the bask of my self-justified glory might waft upon them? And they would say, I am blessed because you have walked into a room where I exist. I apologize for having used oxygen before your arrival. Let's look at the the law he is looking at. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. If you can turn there, Uh, fast enough you are welcome to if not i'm going to read it deuteronomy 6 4 says this hear o israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might so deuteronomy is a retelling of the law that's what deuteronomy means the law again so in the middle of the law jesus says or or god says here in this uh in the lord um you have to love the lord your god with all your heart soul mind and strength When you were a kid, you were probably assigned chores you didn't want to do. You have to go to the lawn, you have to wash the toilet, you have to pick up your clothes, whatever it might be. And then at the end of it, what what, what does the parent sometimes say? And do it with a good attitude. Now that is too far. The fact that I got it done should just be enough. Don't expect me now to also do it with a good attitude. And what God is saying here is those who have an understanding of what the law is actually trying to communicate aren't merely law obeyers. They are moved by God to have a deep, abiding love and affection for the lawgiver. And absent that deep and abiding love, obedience to the law is absolutely useless. Because it begins with a love for God, the lawgiver. And that is what is what uh, is truly a connection with God. Not someone who can just simply keep all the rules. And that's what that lawyer talking to Jesus had missed. He wanted to know, how do I obey the law to get to heaven? And he had missed a deep and abiding affection for the lawgiver. Okay, now turn to Leviticus chapter 19, beginning in verse 18. Leviticus chapter 19, 18 says this, You shall love your neighbor as yourself, I am the Lord. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. So these are the two parts of the Old Testament this lawyer is quoting. 
and he, excuse me, he asked Jesus the question, who is my neighbor? So I, what I want to do is I want to begin reading in Leviticus 9, 9, so that you can get a better understanding of why this guy was working so hard to self-justify. Leviticus 19, 9. You had no idea you are going to be reading Leviticus today, did you? Here we go. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Ne- reaping is when you harvest, just so you know, okay? Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither your, gather your fallen grapes in your vineyard. vineyard. So what they're saying is you shouldn't get every single piece of produce off your land. You should leave a little bit. Leave a little bit hanging out. Don't, get, don't harvest it all. Don't be super thorough. Be thorough, but not super thorough. Why in the world would you do that? Well, that seems terribly inefficient. Here's why. You shall leave them for the poor, for the sojourner, that is the foreigner. I am the Lord your God. Leave some food out. So the impoverished among you and the foreigner who happens to be wandering through your land has food to eat. You shall not steal. You shall not lie. You shall not swear by my name falsely. You shall not oppress your neighbor or rob him. The wages of a hired worker shall not remain with you all night. You shall not curse the deaf or put a stumbling block before the blind. I don't know who's doing that. You shall fear the Lord. You shall do no injustice. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge your neighbor. You shall not go around as a slanderer. You shall not stand up against the life of your neighbor. You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge. You shall love your neighbor as you love yourself. Who is your neighbor according to the law? Just about anybody breathing. And the whole concept here is to put your neighbor ahead of yourself. Do you see how the lawyer had completely missed it? He wanted to exclude everybody except those who were worthy of his neighborliness. His goal was a good goal, which is eternal life. And Jesus agreed with the goal, eternal life. However, what the lawyer wanted was a to-do list. Who should I be nice to and how? And what Jesus wanted him to understand was, it's not a to-do list, it's a to-be list. The, the lawyer was asking, who deserves my, my neighborliness? Who deserves my kindness? Who measures up to me? And in the end of the day, who is going to measure up to be worthy of this guy's good deeds? Absolutely no one, because he's so good in his own eyes. He's figured everything out. He will be happy to be nice with anybody who's living the way he is living. And of course, nobody is going to be living up to this guy's standards because in his mind, he is the standard. And this is the cruelty of being good. He has established in his mind that he's a good enough guy. And so therefore, if you are not a good enough person, he will exclude you from kindness. He will exclude you from being treated as a human. He will exclude you from the care that you might need. Okay, one last thing before we get to the parable itself. Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 43, Jesus says this. You have heard it said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I say this, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. Pause there for a minute. Verse 45, he says, so that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. 
See how Jesus always shifts things from what must be done to what, how you must be. He's constantly reminding ourselves the question is not what do we do, the question is who we are. And he is saying, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you so you can live in your identity as sons of the king, your father in heaven. He makes his son rise on the evil and on the good. He sends rain on the just and on the unjust. If you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even tax collectors do that? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even Gentiles do that. So Jesus here reminds us of how, the, how God works. It's not a question of what must we do, what must we be. And so therefore, he wants to reorient the question of the lawyer from who is my neighbor, and he's going to switch it to what? How to be a neighbor. That's what he's going to switch it from. The lawyer is trying to ask a religious question. What must I do? And Jesus wants to change his thinking and say, no, no, no. The question is what you're going to do. How are you to be a neighbor? When I must do something, that means I must be good. And if I am pretty good, then that means I can be cruel to those who aren't good. Anyone can love their friends. Anyone can love their family. Jesus is asking us in our identity as sons and daughters of the King of Heaven to love our enemies, to love sinners. Okay, let's look at the parable. You're, you're like, we've been here like 20 minutes. We haven't even got to the parable yet. Deal with it. All right, here we go. Jesus answers his question. The question is, who is my neighbor? A guy was going down to Jerusalem from Jericho. Man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Did I say it right? Jerusalem is to the south. Jericho is just to the north and a bit to the east. But in Israel, as you always remember, down and up, we tend to think of compass uh, directions. You go south, you go down, you go north, you go up. They're thinking of elevation. Jerusalem is above sea level. Jericho is below sea level. So you're going down to Jericho because it's downhill most of the way. Uh, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. He fell among robbers. He was stripped. He was beaten. And he was left half dead. Not three-quarters dead. Not one-quarter dead. Half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was coming down the road. He crossed over to the other side. And he left him there. Likewise, a Levite came. He saw him. Passed by on the other side. Okay, who are these two guys? Priests and Levites. They are both Levites. In the Old Testament, priests and Levites were both of the tribe of Levi. Priests, however, were the sons of Aaron, and they were given a particular job of operating the worship of the temple. The Levites also assisted in the temple, uh, but they weren't functioning as the priesthood. So these are both people who operate and function within the worship center of Israel the temple. And this guy, we don't know if he was a Jew or a Gentile, although our guess would be he was a Jew. A priest comes by and crosses by the other side. A Levite comes by and crosses by uh, on the other side. Then a Samaritan came by. Boo. Okay, good. You're into it. All right. What's a Samaritan? A Samaritan. They run campgrounds all over the country. No, they don't. A Samaritan. Back in the Civil War, after Solomon's reign, the kingdom of Israel split to the ten northern tribes and Judah and Benjamin to the south. To the south. After a time, uh, the northern tribes were conquered by the uh, uh, empire of Assyria, and they were essentially wiped out. Most of the people were taken. 
The Assyrians then resettled in uh, the northern ten tribes, and there was um, the Assyrians and uh, the Jews who were left uh, married and, uh, and married one another. And so soon, uh, most of the people in the north, northern tribes of Israel were sort of half Jewish, half Assyrian, half a lot of other things. So the people in the southern part of Judah, uh, of Israel, that is Judah, really looked down on the people of the north because they, they viewed them as half-breeds. And the people, and these were Samaritans, and the Samaritans still wanted a connection with their Jewish uh, legacy, and they wanted to worship as Jews, but they were rejected by most of Israel. So most of Israel would look down on Gentiles, but they looked down on Samaritans as traitors. So that's why Samaritans are so looking down on. So the Samaritan came to where he was. He saw him. Look at the end of verse 33. What does it say? He had a deep desire to keep the law. Am I reading it right? No. What's it say? He had compassion. He had he was moved with compassion. He went down, he bound up his wounds, he poured on oil and wine, which was a typical first aid and medicative treatment. He set him on his animal, that's how bad he was, couldn't even walk. He took him to an inn and he took care of him, but he had to keep going on his way. And so he paid extra money to the innkeeper and told him, uh, keep a journal of any extra expenses you might have. And when I get back, I will make sure to repay you, you uh have my name as good credit. And then Jesus asked this question, who among these guys, the Levite or the priest or the Samaritan, who was the neighbor? Not who sought a neighbor, but who was the neighbor? And what did the lawyer say? The Samaritan. Did he? No, he didn't say the Samaritan. Why? Because he's a racist. He said the one who showed him mercy. He couldn't even say the word Samaritan. He was only willing to admit the one who was a neighbor is the one who showed mercy, meaning the one who showed compassion. Jesus is now saying, you go and be like a compassionate Samaritan. How do you think the lawyer is going to take that? Not real well. Odds this guy came to faith in that moment. We're not sad. We'll keep holding out hope, right? So here's a couple of ways we have to understand the contrast between the lawyer and the Samaritan. The lawyer is saying, who is my neighbor? With the Samaritan, Jesus is asking, who proved to be a neighbor? The lawyer is trying to figure out, what must I do? And the Samaritan is demonstrating what I must be like, neighborly. And that's a major difference. It's not looking for the minimum activities required to be religious. He is saying, what is a person of God like? What is a person of the Lord like? The lawyer is asking this question, who deserves my care? Who deserves my care? Have you ever said this to yourself when you're thinking about giving money to somebody or an organization? You might say something like this. I know you've never said this. People who come to the 11 o'clock service would say this. I'm going to say the same thing about you to them. But I don't know if they're going to waste it. Here's a good one. Well, he's just going to use it to buy beer. I know you've never thought that. What, what have I just done? He's not quite good enough to receive my care. Here, I'll give you a tip. If you're worried about giving money to somebody and they're going to buy beer, do you want a tip? Just go buy them the beer. If you're, if they, if you're that worried about it, at least get them some good beer. 
Some of you don't know what to do with that. I'm just going to leave it there. The lawyer is saying, who deserves my care? The, the Samaritan demonstrates this. How do I show care? The question is not should I. The question is not who. The question is how do I show care? The, the priest and the Levite came up with some reason in their own mind why in that moment they didn't have to show care to the person who was dead, half dead on the side of the road. Uh, what would we call a person who walks someone half dead on the side of the road? What would we call that? I would call that evil. There's no other way. Is there some other way that we should categorize that, that behavior? To see someone half dead on the side of the road and to walk by knowing that soon they will be dead. I there's no other way to consider that behavior. So how does a priest and Levite in their mind come up with the justification to walk by and leave a guy half dead? How do you do that? What brings you to the point where you can leave a person to die and still consider yourself good? Anybody have any guesses? It's because I'm already good enough. And Christians, we do this all the time. We've got one or two pet sins on the side, and they, we don't like them. Nobody's saying they're good, and we're not pretending they're good. However, I do a lot of other really good things, so you know what? This isn't that big a deal. So on the one hand, we saw at the first part, the cruelty of being good is no one measures up. The second part of this is the cruelty of being good is this. A little evil won't wreck me. If I am pretty good, then I can have a little side sin, and I'm not ruined. And, and when that's the case, we have completely missed the point of what God is trying to do in our own hearts, haven't we? We're like that priest and Levite who get to walk by, and many commentators would, would wonder this. Likely, they were leaving from Jerusalem, going back to Jericho, where they lived, Otherwise, they would have been traveling in a group because normally you would go with your group to the temple to, be, to begin your uh, service for your, the time period you've been assigned. So they're going home alone. So they've got their church time in. They're dialed in. They've done their offerings. They've done all their stuff. I'm dialed in. God and I are good. Thank goodness I've done all my good deeds. I don't have to do anything good for the rest of the day. And if I do something a little bit bad, it's not the end of the world. I offered all my offerings. I did my Bible reading. I gave my tithe. Everything is okay. I can get away with a little bit of sin on the side. And that's what being good does. When we self-justify, we get to purchase for ourselves the ability to do a little bit of wrong uh, on the side. The priest and the Levite sought their own justification, and the result was, since they were already good enough, I don't need to be good enough to help a guy who's dying on the side of the road. What about the Samaritan? Was he good enough? He'd been told his whole life he wasn't good enough. But his heart was moved with compassion, and he showed what a true compassion uh, looks like. A couple of quick questions to think about this. The, I've got two ways to be a neighbor. No, three ways to be a neighbor. I'm trying to decide if I'm going to give them all to you. I've got 17 ways to be a neighbor. No, I'm kidding. How about this? I've got two ways it's really hard to be a neighbor and one way it's really easy. Ready? Two ways it's hard to be a neighbor. Number one, it's hard to be a neighbor 
when you're offended by the way other people sin. It's hard to be a neighbor when you're offended by the way other people sin. I looked all week. I couldn't find the verse where it says I'm supposed to be offended by other people's sin. There is one verse in Matthew 18 that says I should be offended when somebody sins against me. And what I should do is tell that person, would you knock it off? And they're supposed to say, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. And if they don't, then I get another guy and we go and tell him, would you knock it off? And he's supposed to say, then, oh, yeah, I'm an idiot. And then if he doesn't say it, then we say, get out of here. You can't hang out with us. That's Matthew 18 in a nutshell. It's hard to be a neighbor when I'm offended by other people's sin. If other people have to have a certain level of righteousness or refrain from doing certain things, we feel disqualify them from our friendship or our compassion, it's really hard to be a neighbor. If there are certain things, if people do them, if they're, if somebody is addicted to alcohol, if somebody is addicted to pornography, if somebody is um, watches shows I don't like, if somebody uh, struggles with same-sex attraction, their sin offends me. If I am offended by their sin, it is hard to be a neighbor. What am I to do with other people's sin? There's one thing we are to do with other people's sin. Call them to repentance and grace. Call them to find hope in Christ alone. That certainly is what we're called to do. Call them to find hope and deliverance and salvation in the grace of Christ. However, when I've decided the culture around me does not measure up to my sense of righteousness, it is going to be really hard for me to be a neighbor into my culture around me. It's hard to be a neighbor when I'm offended by the way other people sin, especially with this which is the fact that most of the time when we uh, notice other people's sin, it's because it's much worse than our own sin. They think the same thing about you. Okay, the second way it's hard to be a neighbor. It is hard to be a neighbor if I am only doing good to justify myself. If I am only doing good to establish that I am good, or if I am only doing good because I feel about some bad stuff I did, if I feel bad about some bad stuff I did, Or, if I am only doing good because I know I got some bad stuff going on in my life, it is hard to be a neighbor because in that case, I'm going to be looking for the bare minimum I must do to feel better about the bad stuff I've done. And it's hard to be a neighbor if I'm only trying, because then what I'm going to be doing is hunting for a person whose need exactly matches the amount of shame and guilt I'm feeling for the bad stuff in my life. And it's hard to be a neighbor like that. Jesus calls us to a different kind of neighborliness. He calls us to neighborliness out of a love for God and others having nothing to do with justifying ourselves. Hard to be a neighbor when I'm offended by other people's sin. It's hard to be a neighbor when I'm only doing good to gain my own righteousness. What's the best way to be a neighbor? The easiest way to be a neighbor is to remember Jesus was a neighbor first. He who knew no sin became sin that we might have the righteousness of God in him. Jesus left the glories of heaven to come down and die for us on the cross while we were still sinning, Christ died for us. So the way to be a neighbor is to have Christ work in our heart and give us such clarity of vision to see he first showed compassion to us that we didn't deserve when we were sinning against him in offensive ways He poured out his love and grace on us. If he was this neighborly toward us, can I then be neighborly toward someone who doesn't deserve it? 
Yes. I am not being neighborly to get somebody to like me. I'm not being neighborly to get them to abandon their sin, although I hope they do that and find Christ. I am being neighborly because Jesus was a neighbor to me first. I have resource to show love because Jesus loved me. I have resource to show compassion because Jesus was compassionate to me. The cruelty of being good. No one will measure up to us trying to be good. And the problem with being good is a little bit of evil won't wreck me. But the joy of being a neighbor is we recognize Jesus was a neighbor to us first. And so we can then extend that love and that grace to others around us. Others who don't deserve it, but we extend it nonetheless. 